Father, again, we are so blessed uh, in so many ways. You, you have uh, blessed our lives. Uh, most of all, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, uh, our Savior, and all that he's done for us on the cross. And Lord, we, we, so we thank you for our salvation. We, we thank you for uh, the life you've given us, uh, this great country we live in, Lord, and uh, just our the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and Lord, uh, along with a lot of difficulties that, that come our way in, in a fallen world. And so today, Lord, as you, uh, we journey on in the book of Revelation and we come to this uh, great set of passages about the millennium and eternity, Father, we have see how just much more we have to be grateful for. Uh, a great future that you plan for all of us in your kingdom. All of us who know you, Lord, uh, you, there's just so much in store for us. And so I ask today as we begin this journey through these last few chapters of Revelation and as we look at the millennium and as we look at eternity that you just open our spiritual eyes and just uh, help us to see this great hope uh, that we have in Jesus Christ for a grand future, Lord, with you. Uh, I just ask that you bless the study today, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name, amen. amen. You know, we've gone through some pretty tough material in the book of Revelation. I kind of liken it to uh, eating a, a vegetarian meal of broccoli and spinach and uh, potatoes and carrots. All of that stuff is really good for you, but uh, I don't particularly like uh, broccoli and spinach, so uh, I, I eat it but because I know it's good for me, and I know the first part of Revelation is really good for us to hear. But I'll tell you where we're heading today. We're heading to dessert. I mean, it's like this big chocolate cake, and who doesn't like chocolate cake? So everybody's going to like what we're going to cover in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. If you don't like this, there's something wrong with you. We're going to really be looking at some fascinating material here as we take a quick tour, first of all, through the Millennium Kingdom. And we began that tour last week when we saw Jesus Christ return to the earth uh, with uh, the church, uh, and uh, he came to the Battle of Armageddon, and in a blink of the eye, uh, the Antichrist was captured, the false, false prophet was captured, and they were sent directly to hell. And then the rest of this people on earth who took the mark of the beast, they were destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon, uh, and their, the birds ate their flesh, and uh, their souls were sent to Hades where they await the great white throne judgment. Now as we come to chapter 20, God's going to turn us attention to the fall of our greatest enemy, and that's the fall of Satan himself. So go with me to chapter 20, and let's read those first few verses there, uh, beginning in verse number 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, that is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's going to take some angel to bind Satan. In, in, fact, in fact, I don't believe there's an angel by himself that could bind Satan. So, uh, no doubt, 
the Lord's power is used in this process of binding Satan. It'd kind of be like Big Brandon uh, bringing down John and me coming over there and handcuffing and binding John. Uh, it's kind of, it, it, it's going to take the power of God along with his angel to bind Satan in this bottomless pit. And look what happens in verse number three. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. And I like this part. He shut him up. He shut him up. Now, I know, you know, literally what that means is he shut the door and he can't get out. But I think also symbolically he shut him up. So we won't hear Satan anymore. I don't know about you. I, I can't even come to worship. I can't even come to church. Well, I don't feel like Satan's on my heels. I mean, I'm, I catch, I'm coming to church today and there's a train. I catch a train and it's not just any train. It's the mother of all trains. I mean, that thing must have been five miles long. And so I'm already frustrated. And then I come to church and I'm, 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 I'm trying to get into worship and I'm hearing things in my head. And I, and I know that's demonic voices attacking me and trying to drive me away from the worship of God. But in, when the millennium comes, Satan is going to be shut up. And no longer will he deceive the nations. No longer will he tempt us with evil thoughts. And no longer will we hear his accusations. I mean, he's going to be shut up, and there's going to be a seal on him, and I think that seal's going to be right over his mouth, and we're not going to hear him anymore. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And after these things, watch this now. This is really interesting, and we really won't get into a, a long discussion about this today. But he must be released for a little while. And we'll see that when we get next week in the uh, verse number 7 through verse number 10. We won't get into that today. But he must be released because it's part of God's plan for him to be released. And we'll discuss a little bit about that today. And then we'll look at that in detail next week. Now, one of the things that we see right here, right here in this passage, and I want you to notice this, how long is Satan bound for? He's bound for a thousand years. And we're told that twice in this passage. Now, all of these aberrant theologies about the book of Revelation kind of, kind of come to a head right here in this idea of Satan being bound for a thousand years. That blows away, as far as I'm concerned, the preterist interpretation of Revelation because the preterists believe that everything that happened in Revelation happened in the first century. Well, I don't see any evidence of the fact that Satan was bound for a thousand years in the first century. He was not bound for a thousand years. There's no place in history where we can see Satan bound for a thousand years. And so you can just throw out the preterist interpretation. Now, the, that time period is important because that time period is what conservative theologians refer to as the millennium. And I think that's one of the most exciting doctrines in the entire Bible. This thousand year period when Jesus Christ rules on earth in a form of utopia before we go into eternity. Now there's several approaches to interpreting the millennium. And I want to talk about those a minute, minute before we sort of take a tour through the millennium. Uh, and so I want to look at those approaches because you're going to hear these all the time and you need to be familiar with them. One of the approaches, and a lot of people adhere to this approach, is the amillennial approach. Now, the word millennial, you know what the word millennial means. That means a thousand years. I is the prefix uh, in front of millennial. I in the Greek is 
means no or not. So basically, very simply put, amillennialists believe that there's not a millennial, uh, that Jesus returns. We see Jesus return in chapter number 19, and then we have heaven on earth forever. And the way they defend their argument, one of the ways they defend their argument is they say that the thousand years is symbolic of a long period of time, which really is symbolic of eternity. But I've got a problem with that. Uh, if, if it was eternity, I think it would say forever. I think we see, not only do we see a thousand years here in the first part of chapter 20, we see it four other times. So six times in the chapter of John, uh, uh, John mentions the literal thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, uh, the, the millennial, I mean, the amillennials also raise the argument, if it's such an important event, now, obviously, the millennial is, millennium is a very, very important event. It's a very exciting event. And if it's such an, an important doctrine, why would it only be mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter number 20? Now, John mentions it six times. As far as I'm concerned, that's enough. But where they go wrong is, they, they really don't look at the, the rest of the scriptures because we see the millennium mentioned or referred to directly or indirectly throughout scripture. And I'm going to show you that. Just, you know, we're going to highlight some of that here in just a few minutes. All right. The, where I really throw the amillennialist view out is this passage that we have in, in chapter 20 when we get to verse number 7. Let's, let's go ahead and read that. Let's, let's pick up in verse number 7 and let me... Jump ahead and read that. We won't discuss it in detail, but let me read it. It says, now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison. Now, where's Satan going to be in eternity? He's going to be in hell. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll see that later on in the book of Revelation. So he's, he's not going to be around for a thousand years. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth after a thousand, Satan's going to be bound, he's going to be put in Hades, and then after a thousand years, he's going to be put in hell. And then it goes out, it goes on and says in verse number eight, it says, and will go out to deceiving the nations. At that point, he's going to be released. Now, he's obviously not going to be released in eternity, which are in the four corners of Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And so there's going to be a lot of people on this earth involved in that rebellion. And I'll just stop right there. There, there are going to be a lot of rebels on this earth after a thousand years. I mean, after a thousand years of utopia and Jesus Christ ruling this earth in truth and righteousness and peace and prosperity, people are still going to rebel against him. Now, let me ask you this. How much rebellion is going to go on in eternity? Zero. So we're not talking, we can't be talking about eternity here. We have to be talking about the end of the millennium. And then this rebellion is put down. You'll see in verse number 9 and 10. And, and then we, at that point, we go into eternity. So I, I just completely throw out the amillennialist view. Now, I'll tell you why that view exists here in a few minutes. But, but uh, it's, still, it's still a popular view. But I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a heretical view. All right, now another view that was very popular at the end of the uh, 19th century going into the 20th century was the post-millennial view. 
Now, post means what? After. And so, what's post-millennial mean? That Jesus Christ returns after the thousand years, after uh, uh, the millennium is over. And so, uh, that, again, that view was very popular at the end of the 19th century because let me tell you what that view says. What that view basically says is that the church is going to get this great victory that the church is going to get larger and larger and more and more people are going to get saved and eventually they're going to usher in, they're going to defeat Satan and they're going to usher in the kingdom age of prosperity and peace and then Jesus will rule and reign from heaven and then at the end of the uh, thousand years he will come to this earth and he will rule and reign on this earth throughout eternity. Now, no, I don't amen that at all. I think, that's, I think that, that, that view is totally wrong. Now, they based that view, and the reason it became so popular, they based that view on the idea that what Jesus said about the gates of hell can't you know, stand against the church, and that somehow the church is going to get stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger, and that it's going to have this great victory. And if you go back in church history, back, to the 1800s, the late 1800s and the early uh, 1900s, the church was doing very well. The church was booming. Churches were being built all over America. Missions, we were sending missionaries out all over the world. The Bible was being interpreted in all languages. And there was this sense that the world was getting better and better. And, 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 and to some degree, there was peace that was on earth at that time. There, there, there weren't any major wars going on. There were some minor wars, but there weren't any major wars. And people began to think, hey, maybe we have entered the millennium that we've ushered in uh, the kingdom age. Well, what happened to prove that wrong? World War I, and then came World War II. And so at that point, I don't think there were any post-millennialists left. And I got to tell you, if you can look at this world today, and you can think that somehow we're going to usher in the millennium. I don't know what you're smoking, but you're on something. Because there's no way that the church is going to be able to fix this world. Now, I certainly hope that we have revival. I certainly hope that we see the church growing and we see missions booming and we see people getting saved all over the world. But that's not the picture that the Bible paints, is it? The picture that the Bible paints is that things are going to get worse and worse and the hearts of man are going to wax colder and colder and the love of man is going to be almost non-existent and the church is going to become apostate in the latter days before Jesus Christ returns. And I believe that's exactly what we see being played out in history today. And so, uh, again, I rule out uh, the, the post-millennial view too. All right, now, that brings us to, to what I believe is the biblical approach to the millennium, to the doctrine of the millennium, and that is the literal pre-millennial view. What's pre mean? Before. Before the millennium begins, Christ returns to this earth, and that's exactly what we see happen in chapter 19, verse number 11. We see Jesus come as the conqueror uh, with his church, and then the millennium Begins, And that's what we see in chapter 19, and we see that in uh, chapter 20. And so we aren't lacking for any scriptural references to back up 
a premillennial view. It's right there in the text in chapter 19 and in chapter number 20. But that's not the only place that you find it. I mean, six times you see the millennium mentioned in chapter 20, and we also see it mentioned, uh, I believe, throughout Scripture. Also, in John's presentation of this last part of Revelation, there is a clear distinction between the millennium and eternity. There, you, there's no doubt that eternity doesn't begin till we get to chapter 21 after this last rebellion uh, of mankind on earth that Satan leads before he's cast into the bottomless pit and we never see him on the scene ever again. All right, now, but again, you, you can go elsewhere, and that's what I want to do today. I want to take you on a little tour of Scripture, and I want you to just get a little taste of what the millennium is going to be all about, and because you, you, there are plenty direct and indirect references to the millennium throughout Scripture. Now, we're not going to look at every one of them, but we're going to look at some of them. And, and, it, and it begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. So, so get your Bibles. Everybody ought to be able to find Genesis. And go to the book of Genesis. It's the first book, by the way, if you don't know. So it'll be at the front of your Bible. Don't look in the, in the index. Look at oh, the preface. It's in Genesis. Genesis chapter number 2. Now, in Genesis, we have an account of creation. And that's what we're going to be looking at. But when God gave us the account of creation, he gave us a pattern for two things. He gave us a pattern for the Sabbath, but he also gave us a pattern for the history of mankind. And I want you to look at this. So, so go with me to Genesis chapter 2 and look down at verse number 1. And, and this is kind of a summary of what goes on in the first chapter. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. In how many days? In six days. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Now then what, look at what happens on the, on the seventh day. Something special happens. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He sanctified it because in it, in it, he rested from all the work which God had created and all that he made. Now, let me ask you a question. If God had wanted to, how quickly could he have created the universe? Just like that. I mean, if he can create it in six days, let me tell you what, he can create it uh, at the blink of an eye. But he took seven days, and he, and he worked six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And that's a pattern for mankind and the way we're to live our life. We're to work six days and we're to rest on the seventh day. Or I like the five days and rest for two days. Or maybe four days we're heading to and rest for three days. My wife has a pattern, seven days. I told her yesterday, she's like a little bumblebee running around. You never stop. You need to slow down. You need to rest. This you got last night. She was like, "Oh, my back's killing me." I said, "Well, your back's gonna kill you if you don't rest. Sometimes you need to rest." There's a pattern for us there. I mean, if you want to work six days, work hard for six days, but at least one day a week you're to rest. Okay, but that's also a pattern for 
human history. For 6,000 years, the earth will be under a curse. And I believe that's the prophetic picture we're getting right here. For 6,000 years, we will, mankind will labor under that curse. And then the seventh millennium, the, the last 7,000 years, the Lord will bless and he will sanctify those days. And those will be a time, the millennium will be a time where God has sanctified it, where God rests and we rest. Because in this 6,000 years, not only are we working and we are laboring under a curse, God is laboring with us. And, and for 6,000 years, he's working to build his church, to build his kingdom. And in, the seventh, in that seventh year, that seventh millennium rather, in that seventh millennium, God is going to rest. And I believe, I tell you, if you go, and nobody knows exactly what that date is, but, but we're heading very close to those 6,000 years. And I believe we're about to enter that millennium rest. And so, uh, uh, and then after that thousand years, then we will go into eternity. Now, you can also go to the prophets, and you can go to the minor prophets and the major prophets, and in the minor and major prophets, almost at the end of every one of them. Now, when you get to Isaiah, and you get to Ezekiel, and you get to uh, some of the others, you see, uh, you see the millennium mentioned throughout the book. Isaiah does, says a lot about the millennium. But usually when you get to the minor prophets, if you want to read about the millennium, go to the very end. You know, I kind of like reading the minor prophets, skipping the first, uh, if it's an eight-chapter book, I skip the first seven chapters, and I like to read chapter eight. Uh, for the first seven chapters are all about judgment. Just like the first, you know, part of Revelation is mainly all about judgment. So are the minor prophets. But when you get to the end of the minor prophets, then you start getting a picture of this utopian kingdom age on earth. But where's the focus? And those of you that went through the minor prophets, where's the focus? The focus is on a very prosperous and powerful literal kingdom of Israel. A literal kingdom of Israel. Now, that's one of the reasons that the amillennialists uh, exist, those that don't believe in a millennium, because it causes problems for them, because most of the people who are amillennialists also have adopted replacement theology. And what's replacement theology? Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel in God's kingdom plan. And so there's no place for Israel in the kingdom. And so they take all of these prophecies about the millennium, including John chapter 20, and they say that it's all symbolic of the church. It's all about the church, and that's what I want to show you today, that that's not the case. There's a clear distinction to what's going to happen to the church in the millennium and what's going to happen to the nation of Israel in the millennium. And let me just sum it up for you. The nation of Israel in the millennium will be restored uh, to its proper place in history. It will be the greatest nation on earth, and it will occupy all the land that was promised to uh, uh, Israel by uh, God to Abraham. And so that's the picture that you see when you look at the millennium in uh, the scriptures. And that's why the reformers, whenever you hear the word, word reform, I'm a reform theologian, covenant theologian, you better, you better raise a red flag. Uh, that's not always the case. But a lot of those reformers are also amillennialists. 
And they also believe in replacement theology. And there's a bunch of them out there right now. And there's a bunch of that teaching going on. And, and that's why I wanted to take you on this little tour of the millennium so you can see if you take these scriptures in their context and you read them as they're given to you, there's no way that you can be an amillennialist. There's no way that you can believe that God is done with the nation of Israel. There's just no way. So, so uh, what I want to do is... is uh, Look at some of these. Uh, now, when we get into these, we won't see them speak. You won't see the word millennial. Millennium. You, you won't see that. You won't see a time span given. We don't get that. That mystery's not revealed to us to John chapter 20. But we, when we get to John chapter 20, it's very clear that, that the millennium is, is, or that kingdom age is a thousand years before we go into Eternity. Now, it's going to be a very interesting age because over in Israel, King David himself is going to rule the nation of Israel. That's, a, that's an amazing prophecy to be. But let me read it to you from Ezekiel chapter. Don't turn there yet. We'll be turning to plenty of scriptures. But let me just read that to you because it's a pretty straight out prophecy. In Ezekiel 37, it says, In that day, in which we know is the millennial, millennium, David, my servant, shall be king over them. Over who? Over Israel. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land. You hear that? They sh what land? Palestine. The, uh, they got a little sliver of that right now. They have a lot more of it in the kingdom age. They shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant. Now, that, who is that referring to the church? No, that's referring to Israel. Where your fathers dwelt. That's not the church. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children. Now, what about Jesus? Where is he going to be ruling? David's going to be ruling, I have no doubt, literally, he's going to be on a throne in Jerusalem. Who's he going to be ruling? He's going to be ruling the nation of Israel. There's going to be another throne there in Israel too, in Jerusalem. And that's going to be the throne of God, the throne of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will not only rule over David and Israel, he will rule over all the kingdoms of the earth as king of kings and lord of lords. Now Zechariah describes the Lord's presence in Jerusalem and, uh, with an amazing prophecy. So I want you to turn there for a minute. Uh, Zechariah is the next to last book in the Old Testament. You go to Malachi or to Matthew, you've gone too far. Now I want you to follow this prophecy real carefully. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. And this is kind of the crescendo of the book of Zechariah. It's really kind of the crescendo of the Old Testament and all the prophecies. This is, this is what it's all heading to as we head into the millennium. And listen to what he says. He says, and it shall, I'm in verse number 16, chapter, the last chapter of Zechariah, verse number 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. Now what is he talking about there? He's talking about the battle of Armageddon. All those nations... All the nations, how many nations of the earth are going to come against 
Jerusalem, all the nations of the earth. They're going to come against Jerusalem, but all the peoples of all the nations are not going to come. There's going to be still some people left who have not taken the mark of the beast, and they're not part of the church yet. You have to go to the parable of the goats and the sheep that Jesus gives about the end time to see that picture. There's going to be some people who are left on this earth who are not part of the church, who are not going to live in glorified bodies. They're going to inhabit this earth, okay? And all the peoples, and it shall come to pass that all, everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem at Armageddon are going to be here. They're going to live here. And they shall come up year to year to worship the king. Who's the king? Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts. Now watch when they're coming here. All of you prophecy guys, watch this. They're going to come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that's really exciting to me. It might not be exciting to you, but that's really exciting to me. Let me tell you why. That is the last feast to be fulfilled. There are seven feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles is the millennium. It is the millennium. Now, there's seven feasts. You know about those feasts. There's Passover. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's the Feast of First Fruits. Those are the first three. When were they fulfilled? When Jesus Christ was crucified and he was raised from the dead. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of how they were fulfilled, but all three of those feasts were fulfilled in his death and his resurrection. Then there was the fourth feast, which is Pentecost. When was that fulfilled? When the Spirit came down with tongues of fire and inhabited the church. And so that's the Feast of Pentecost. Four feasts have been fulfilled. The next next feast on the prophetic calendar is the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. That's the Jewish New Year. It happens sometimes around my birthday, around the end of September every year. The Feast of Trumpets. When that trumpet blows, the rapture is going to take place. And the tribulation, we see that angel blowing the trumpet to begin the tribulation. The great tribulation is going to begin. And and all of this fits perfectly. So the next thing to happen on the prophetic calendar is for the trumpet to blow. Man, I see all y'all yawning and stuff. I don't know how you can't get excited about this. Man, if this bores you, but puts you to sleep, there's something really wrong with you spiritually, I got to tell you. I mean, are you really sleepy? I mean, I'm, I, I know I get sleepy sometimes too, but, but golly, don't you get excited? The very next thing that can happen to us, man, is the, the, the trumpet can blow and the Lord can call us to heaven to be with him. That, that excites me. I mean, that really excites me. I look at this world and I look at the mess that this world's in and I look at where we're heading and I know that and that's where my hope is. My hope is I like Donald Trump. I shouldn't say that, but I do. Even better than Obama. I don't, I don't know if you realize that or not. Donald Trump's not going to fix this world. The, the, our Senate is not going to fix this world. All we're going to do is make a bigger mess of it. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I've got a hope that may, in the midst of this, I very well might hear the trumpet blow. Or God might just give me a massive heart attack right here while I'm preaching to you and take me on up to be with him now. I mean, one way or the other, I've got a hope. But, but if I've got to wait, you know, it's going to happen in my lifetime. I'm every year around that, around the, end of the beginning of the fall, around the end of September, I am at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, I'm looking up. 
And I'm listening. I mean, let that trumpet blow. It blows really loud when it blows. Then we enter. We, the church, we're raptured to heaven. And then Israel has the Day of Atonement. That's the next feast. Now, that wasn't much of a celebration. That was a very miserable time where Israel looked at themselves and realized what sinners they were and, then, and realized what a sinful nation they belonged to. And, and so they, they didn't celebrate the Day of Atonement, but they mourned at the Day of Atonement. And we're told that at the end of the Day of Atonement, that Israel will look, Jesus will return, and they'll look on the one they've pierced, and they will mourn. It will be a day of atonement. That will be the next thing after the rapture that will take place. That will take place seven years after the Feast of Trumpets is blown. The day of atonement, you really could say it's the entire great tribulation, but it will culminate with Israel mourning and recognizing Jesus Christ as their Savior. Then the seventh feast. The seventh feast is Going back to John, I mean, Revelation chapter 19, we come with uh, Christ, the church comes with Christ to this earth, and we, the Satan is bound, and he's put into the, he's put into the bottomless pit, which I believe is Hades. He's bound for a thousand years, and the millennium begins. And that's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me read that again. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, that seventh feast, a feast where, where God tabernacles with men and men and women tabernacle with God. And then it says in verse number 17, and it shall be that, that Whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king and the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. You know, I, I think there's a spiritual application to that right now. I mean, it, it, if we don't worship the Lord now, we don't experience the spiritual rain that God wants to give us. I mean, if we neglect that worship, but in that day, what fool will not want to worship Almighty God living in Jerusalem? Now, there will be some people who won't. And what he says is that there will be no rain in that nation where they don't come and worship God. There will be no rain. And I think it's talking about uh, material rain there, but it's also talking about spiritual rain. There's going to be a drought, a spiritual drought and a drought of rain in that land that doesn't come up to worship God. Now, is that eternity? Let me ask you that. That can't be eternity. Let me tell you what, if you make it to eternity, you're going to worship God. There's not going to be anybody who doesn't worship God that makes it to eternity. All right, now. So uh, I just got to believe that just about everybody is going to just want, now maybe after a thousand years people won't be as excited about it, but I just got to believe that, boy, especially those first 100 or 200 years, there's not going to be anything more exciting to the peoples of this world. Now that's not you and I, but to the normal people of this world, the people who are living out their lives, there's not going to be anything more exciting to them than to come up to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. Look at what Isaiah has to say about that. Go to the first part of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. And then look at 
let's pick up in verse number three. Isaiah, everybody find it? Big old book of Isaiah back around the middle of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah chapter two. Let's look at verse number three. He says, many people, both Gentile and Jew, shall come and say, I'm in verse number three of Isaiah number two, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that's up to Jerusalem, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And what he's going to do, what he's going to teach the nations, he's going to teach the nations to live in peace and to live in love. You know, that, that's not happening now. But it's going to happen in the millennium. And he's going to be our teacher. I mean, I'm sure there will be other teachers throughout the world. But hey, when he speaks, we're going to listen. And look what happens in verse number four. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks or machetes, knives to, to harvest. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What they will learn will be peace. And they will learn peace from the prince of peace. And so there's no more war. And instead of people making war, what they're going to do, they're going to work. And they're going to work in an, what is primarily an agrarian society, a farming society. But the farming is going to be easy. It's going to be real easy. Why is it going to be easy? Because at that time, the curse is going to be removed. And I mean, it's going to make farming, hey, a real pleasure. I don't know about you right now, but farming, I mean, we got a little box garden that's about four by 12 feet. And, and, and man, the, and with cloth over it, and the weeds can find it, and the bugs can find it, and everything can find it. Because there is a curse on this earth. But that curse is going to be removed. I mean, that's what Paul talked about over in Romans chapter 8. Go with me over to Romans chapter 8. Paul talked about the millennium. Go to Romans chapter 8. You can find that. Go back to the New Testament. Past the Gospels. And look in Romans chapter 8. Look at, look at what Paul has to say about the beginning of the millennium. Or the, this coming millennium. He says in Romans chapter 8, and I'm picking up in verse number 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Who's us? That's you and me. Those of you who are born again in this room who are born again. Hey, we suffer now. We lived in a cursed world. But one day this world, very soon, this world is not going to be under a curse anymore. That's what he's talking about. For the earnest expectation of the creation, the whole creation is waiting for that day when you and I are raptured and we come back with Jesus Christ. Because it says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the children of God or the sons of God. Now, when are the sons of God revealed? When are we revealed? When is the bride shown to the world? That's the picture. Where are we? Think about it. When? I want you all to figure that out without me telling you. Think about it. When? Into the great tribulation? Into the great tribulation? He said, what do you say? When are we coming back for the millennium? In the great tribulation. Y'all are both right. That's exactly when we're going to be revealed. 
Go back to Revelation chapter, I mean, hold your place there, because we're going to come back and let me finish reading that. But go back to Revelation chapter 19, and I'll show you when you're revealed. You, we just looked at this last week. I can't believe you forgot it already. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse number 11. Now I saw heaven open. Now where have we been for seven years? We've been at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's clear in the scripture. Now I saw heaven open. And behold a white horse, and he who is set on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed, here you are, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So when he lands on this earth at the Mount of Olives, and he destroys the armies of this world, you and I will be revealed as his bride. They, nobody will know we're the bride, Hey, because his bride's going to be gone for seven years. Then we will be revealed as his bride at the end of the Great Tribulation, which is the beginning of the millennium. Now go back to Romans chapter 8, and let's finish reading that. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creation, um, verse 19, eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For Watch this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What's that mean? What, what, what's that mean, that God subjected? God cursed this world to give this world a hope. Did y'all catch that? You know that God sometimes curses you in order to give you a hope? He'll curse everything you do in life if, that, if that's what it'll take to get you saved, if that's what it'll take to get you sanctified. He curses it in hope. This world is like a university, that we're, or maybe you could say a field that we're, 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 we're raised up in and we're harvested out of that field, or like a university where we're taught where to be like Christ, where we're sanctified to be like Christ. He does all of that in hope. It's tough out there, guys, because God has a hope for you, and he's, and he's working out his hope for you. He's working out to get you saved, and he's working out in your life to get you sanctified. Because the creation itself also, when the millennium begins, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And how, how do birth pangs work? I'm not a lady, I don't know, but I've been around and watched a few kids born. The, the, they get worse and worse and worse, until the, and they're, they're very worse right before the child is born. Right before the millennium begins, the pangs will be the worst they're ever going to be, and that will be in the Great Tribulation. For we know that the whole creation is groaning now. This creation is in labor right now. The tsunamis, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, all the things that you see, the, 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 the owls eating your cats, I mean, the things that you see in this, this world today, I mean, it is part of this creation groaning in labor pains. And they're going to get more and more intense until the children of God are revealed. And then once they're revealed, the curse is going to be removed and the millennium is going to begin. And everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. The creation is going to be totally different. 
Go with me to Isaiah chapter number 11. Isaiah 11. This is a Bible drill today, and we've got to hurry to get through it. Isaiah 11. I'm going to read you just, just a little bit about what it's going to be like in this new creation. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 6. Isaiah 11, verse number 6. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall be down with the, shall lie down with a young goat. I mean, can you imagine a goat and a leopard lying together? The calf and the young lion and the, the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. A cow and a bear. I mean, a cow and a bear shall graze together. The, the young ones shall lie down together. Now, this is how this can all take place, because in the church, I mean in the church, in the millennium, the way animals feed themselves will be different, because look at this last part of verse 7. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They won't eat other animals. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Now, how many of you would let your child play next to a cobra's hole? Uh, unless you lived in India, they do that sometimes. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And you don't have to worry about it because they can't hurt you. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the presence, the physical presence. That word knowledge doesn't do it right. The, the very presence of God, of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. He's going to be everywhere, and everything's going to change. And Hey, like I said earlier, it's going to be an agrarian society. The, the lions aren't going to, the lions aren't going to eat the cows. The, the leopards aren't going to eat the goats. And it's going to be an agrarian society. And the, imagine an agrarian society where the curse has been removed and, and there are no more uh, bugs. Uh, there might be bugs, but they won't be eating the plants. Uh, there's, there's, there's no more drought. There's no more flood. Uh, there's no more thorns, there's more, no, no more weeds, there's no more thistles. I mean, what a day that's going to be. Amos describes that. Go find the book of Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Look at the last part of the book of Amos, chapter number 9. The last, again, like I told you before, you want to read the good part of the Minor Prophets, always go to the very last chapter, the last few verses, and you're going to find some exciting stuff. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. And the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. In other words, what he's saying right there, before the, before the, as soon as you harvest, you're ready to harvest again. As soon as, you, as soon as you plant your seeds, you got, you got, you got fruit coming up. You don't have to wait a month. You got it coming up right away. The fruit trees, you pick the fruit, and there's more fruit growing as fast as you can pick the fruit. And there'll never be a lack of food. There'll never be a lack of, of, of good stuff to eat. And then he first verse 40, he says, I will bring, now watch this, I will bring back the captives of, the peop of my people Israel. They shall build the way cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant from them. I will plant them in their land, in their land. And, they will, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, that I, the land that he promised 
that God promised to Abraham. Look, there are a lot of things in the millennium, grand things we're going to see in the millennium, that are going to carry over into eternity. But there's some things that aren't going to carry over into eternity. Uh, In the millennium, people will have children. They will raise children. You won't, because you'll be like the angels. We we won't have children anymore. We'll live in our glorified bodies, and we'll be like the angels. Jesus was very clear on that. But the people on this earth will have children, and those children will grow up, and they will grow old, and they will die at some time. But they're going to live a really, really, really long time. Let me, let me read to you. You don't have to turn here. Let me read to you Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 20. It says, Never again shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not die, live out his years. He who dies at, a, at the age 100 will be thought to have died very young. He who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. And so we're going to live, and we're going to live a very long time. And we're going to raise children, and we're going to live in peace. Zechariah gives another picture of that. Go with me over to Zechariah. That's why I kept you in Amos, so you could head right back over to Zechariah. And look in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah, the next to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 8. He says, old men and old women again. I mean, I'm, verse number 4, I'm sorry. Chapter 8, verse number 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, that's what be like... Most of you haven't been to Jerusalem, but that would be like going out and sit out in the middle of, sitting, sitting out in the middle of Johnston Street. Don't try that and see how long you live. But, but, you know, I don't think there are going to be any automobiles, but I, I think it's just going to be, it's, it's, the population is not going to be as large as it is now. Uh, and people are going to be able to sit in the streets, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. They're going to live a very, very long time. And this is the part I like. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I mean, it's safe. It's, it's, you can let your kids run loose because there's no one there to harm them, no one there who would dare harm them. And so we're living in an age of peace. We're living in an age where, where people will have children. And what a fantastic place it will be to raise children. That's not the case today. But imagine a world where Satan is shut up and he can't deceive, he can't tempt, he can't uh, get people to harm little children, he can't, abuse and things like that are not even going to be allowed. And so children are going to be able to grow up and they're going to live a very long time, but they're still going to die. And I believe that they're going to have, those people that live through the millennium are going to have the same opportunity to, re- to receive Jesus Christ as we do now. In some ways, though, I actually believe it'll be harder then than it is now. I think a, one of the things that the curse does for us, it drives us to our knees. It drives us to the Lord. And here are these people, they're going to be living in a utopian society. They're going to see God on his throne, and God's going to rule and reign. And, and you would think that they would want 
Christ to be their Savior, and they would want to become part of the church because they're going to see us in our glorified state. But at the end of a thousand years, Satan is going to be released. He's going to allow to deceive the nations. And as many people as the sand of the sea are going to come to Jerusalem to kill Jesus. Now that's not going to be a very good idea because they're going to be immediately killed themselves. But I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. Here they lived in this utopian society for a thousand years and they're still rebellious against the Lord. That shows you the heart of mankind. All right, now I could go on and on and on and on, but we've run out of time, and so I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to stop there because there are all sorts of passages in the Bible about the millennium, and the passages are not about eternity. They're about a literal period of history that will soon be coming to this earth. Now, I've got to keep you just a minute here, but there's one last issue that... that uh, that I want to address because it pertains to us. What, where are we in the millennium? We're not going to have children. I don't think we're going to be farming any land. I would enjoy that without a curse. I, I would love to farm a good piece of land. The Bible tells us every man's going to have a, sit under his own fig tree. It means you're going to have a, you know, a, a, probably 100 or 200 acres or so, and, and you're going to be able to work that land without a curse and raise your family without a curse. What a glorious place that's going to be. But we're not going to be there. I mean, we're not going to be doing that. I don't believe because we're pretty, it, it's, Scripture is pretty clear about what we'll be doing. Go back to Revelation, one last text here, and look at verse number 4. And I'm only going to jump ahead. I'm not going to go and try to explain all of that today. We don't have time. But I want you to look at the last sentence in chapter 20, verse number 4. The last sentence. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They, who's they? That, you'll have to read the first part of that verse, but that's the church. That's the tribulation saints and the raptured saints. They lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what are we going to be doing in the millennium? We're going to be living with Christ. That's a really good deal. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. We're going to be the governors and judges who rule this earth. All right, now, where are we going to live? That's the issue. Where are we going to live? Well, it says in verse 20, I mean in verse 4 of chapter 20, that we're going to live with Christ. Now, that presents a problem. Because I've been to Jerusalem, and I don't think there's room for all of us there. I don't think we're going to fit there. Unless, maybe, there's only a few people that got saved over the centuries. And the church is only made up of a thousand or so people. If it's more than that, we're just not going to fit. And I believe it's much more than that. I believe the number is much greater than that. So we've got to live somewhere that's very special, and it's very large. And, and Jerusalem doesn't work for that. Not the Jerusalem in Israel that's there right, that's there right now, or is going to be there in the millennial kingdom, where Jesus' temple will be. No, I believe that we will live in the new 
Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. I believe my mom and dad died this year, and I believe that they are now living in the new Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I mean, wait, I mean, when you read, when we get into eternity and the millennium ends, we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And, and uh, uh, that doesn't happen until the millennium is over. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the new Jerusalem isn't already built. Look, the new Jerusalem is the heavenly Zion. It is the eternal city. It's been there for a long time, and it's going to be there forever. It's always been there, in my opinion. I might be wrong about that. But, but I believe that's where we're going to live. When we die, we're going to go home to be with the Lord forever. So when eternity begins and heaven becomes earth, then the new Jerusalem is going to come down from earth. It's going to be brought down from heaven down to earth. But until then, for a thousand years, you and I will commute back and forth between the new Jerusalem and this earth. How are we going to do that? Well, I figured it out. We're going to all have Harley motorcycles. <laughs> so if you don't know how to ride a Harley motorcycle, you need to learn how sometimes before now and, and the millennium begins. I'm not going to teach you. I'm going to be right. I'm going to be doing my own thing. Now listen, you, you don't need a Harley motorcycle. When you get that glorified body, you're going to be something much greater than, it's going to be much greater than a Harley motorcycle. You're going to be able to travel through time and space at the blink of an eye. And that commute between earth and heaven for you is, you just think it, you're going to be there. You're going to be able to move through space and time freely. There's no doubt about that in your glorified body. In an instant, you can be uh, in the new Jerusalem. In another instant, you can be back on the earth. But it also says in verse number 20 that we will live with him. Well, let me tell you who lives in the new Jerusalem. God Almighty lives in the new Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will rule on this earth. I have no doubt about that. But God Almighty will rule in the new Jerusalem. So when you're in the new Jerusalem, you're with God Almighty. And I, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You're with Christ. When you're on this earth and you're, Christ is directing you and he's directing this world and you're with Christ, you're, you're, you're with the Lord. So whether you're in the new Jerusalem or you're on this earth, you're with Christ. Man, is that not like chocolate, better than chocolate cake? I mean, what a great hope we have in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for, for uh, just all the descriptive material you've given us about this time we call the millennium. Lord, and what a place it's going to be for all the people on this earth. But Lord, uh, we've got the best deal of all. Those of us who have received Christ in our hearts, Lord, we're going to live forever with you in the new Jerusalem. We're going to dwell there and we're going to go back and forth and we're going to rule this earth and we're going to reign with you, Lord, and, and uh, throughout this thousand years and throughout eternity. All of that, Lord, it isn't possible because of the good things that we've done while we're on this earth. All, it's all possible because of your blood, the blood you shed at Calvary for us. Father, we just thank you for that blood. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. 
We thank you for the hope, the hope of the future that we have in Jesus Christ. We just thank you in his precious name I pray. Amen.